Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Frank Furiati has been with us before. He is a social scientist and very prominent social commentator who has written more than 25 books. Uh, The new volume is The Road to Ukraine, How the West Lost Its Way. That is our topic today. Uh, Welcome, Frank. We're on a first name basis, I think. I think you've been on twice before. We've had lunch together. So uh, there we are. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Pleasure, Mark. First, let me ask a historical question, which you raise in your preface. You are Hungarian. What is the meaning or status of Ukraine to people in Eastern Europe, which may be quite different from how Ukraine appears to Americans? Well, you know, uh, Hungarians and other East Europeans are used to uh, states and nations having their boundaries changed, you know, sort of decade by decade. And there was a time when large bits of Ukraine were part of Hungary. Um, There's still a a large Hungarian minority in the Transcarpathian region of of Ukraine. Uh, Occasionally, there are tensions uh, between Hungarians and Ukrainians, mainly because uh, for the last uh, decade, they've been trying to take away some of these traditional language rights of Hungarians who, are, uh, um, who have got used to teaching their children in the Hungarian language in schools. So that's become an issue. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, sort of uh, when it came to the invasion of Ukraine, I think a lot of Hungarians uh, instinctively knew that they had to support uh, Ukraine's right to self-determination and, and independence, uh, especially since Hungary itself has been invaded by Russia on more than one occasion. How does, you, you, you turn to the figure of, of Vladimir Putin, how does Putin uh, mark a, a disruption in, uh, in, in a certain historical vision of, of well, maybe I should ask you first, maybe I should ask you first. Uh, you, you lay out, before getting to to specifics of, of Putin, uh, you lay out certain general uh, distinctions uh, in, in our situation today. One is the distinction that commentators draw between old wars and new wars. What, I mean, it sounds so simple, but, but it's, it's actually pretty, pretty broad, complicated thing. 
What is that distinction? Well, a lot of commentators uh, developed this fantastic idea after the end of the Cold War, particularly, which suggested that old wars, which are essentially conventional wars, where you have large armies fighting one another, they said that that kind of wars were obsolescent. They were no longer relevant, especially not in Europe, maybe in Afghanistan or Syria. And that therefore, uh, Europe, uh, fortunately, was now in an end of history period where we no longer had to war worry about old wars. All you had to worry about was new wars, which were essentially cyber warfare, occasional acts of terrorism, uh, essentially wars that were on the margins of everyday life. And the belief that wars had come to an end, I think, uh, kind of blinded Europeans in particular to the fact that uh, wars was always an ever-constant danger lurking in the background. You use the term fantastic, and just, just so, so we're clear, you meant fantastical. Uh, you you call it right. Uh, you you call it a, a form of quote magical thinking. Yeah. Uh, what what are they? How how are they disconnected from 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 you know the, the present reality in in this way? I think that there's a kind of ideological conception that emerged, uh, which often goes by the heading of global globalism where they uh, believe that now we live in a world where we're so interdependent on each other that we're no longer going to be fighting. Uh, we're going to stop short of uh, political or military conflict. And there was this fantasy that the Germans in particular uh, developed, but also some of the other European nations, which suggested that the more we trade with China and Russia, the more they're going to be like us and the more that's going to diminish the possibility of a war. And uh, consequently, uh, when conflict erupts, they're a little bit surprised, they're caught unaware, and they have no idea what to make, you know, what to make of it, because in their fantasy world, uh, nation states no longer matter all that much, and national conflicts are no longer seen as having that kind of corrosive and dangerous impact that they might have had in the past. You say that this is sort of the, the, the magical thinking of the EU. Uh, the EU leadership believes this. And let, let's now turn to that, that question about Putin. How does Putin disrupt the, the EU conception of old wars and new wars, of, of you know, the, 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 the bad past and how we, we, we've gone beyond that old nationalistic and, and uh, territorial uh, sense of things. How does Putin come in? Well, it, it's kind of quite ambiguous because um, Putin is seen as being this uh, irrational, monstrous individual. And I'm not saying that he's like God's gift to human civilization, but you can understand that he has some very profound security concerns. I think the EU and NATO and the United States have not been sufficiently sensitive to the fact that uh, uh, Russia, for better or worse, is very insecure internally and regards any uh, sort of uh, attempts to bring NATO next to its border uh, in, in, in Europe as, as potentially quite uh, dangerous for, for Russia. So 
they never actually thought about uh, what the world looks like from a from the point of view of Moscow, and and therefore on the one hand, they kind of uh, irritated and even incited Putin and Russia to uh, get angry and to to worry about its own security. At the same time, they imagined that. Uh, Russia will, in the end, uh, play the game and will never invade Ukraine, certainly not in the way that it's invaded it this time. And therefore, you had a situation where a couple of days before the invasion, most people in Brussels imagined that uh, it, that somehow life will go on and nothing uh, serious will happen. And it was a very big shock to the European Union leadership that, in fact, the unthinkable became you know, very much... Uh, what they saw in front of their eyes. Are they absorbing this fact and maybe getting out of that magical thinking a little bit? I think they are and they aren't. I think that on the one hand, there's far greater sense of understanding that there are important threats to global peace in many parts of the world. I think that's really quite important. At the same time, they don't really understand that, in fact, uh, the ultimate uh, sort of uh, stability of Europe depends upon a much more, uh, much greater clarity about what Europe's interests are, what the nation's interests are. You need far greater geographical sophistication to be able to deal with these kinds of issues. And one of the unfortunate problems that has kicked in is that our, our foreign office in Britain or the State Departments in Europe are like the American State Department. They're inhabited by uh, people that come from NGOs. They're inhabited by people that don't really have an understanding of what real politics is like. These are people who think that there's something wrong with uh, standing up for national interests. And these are people who think that geopolitics is a dirty word. Uh, so therefore, I don't think that they are intellectually and politically uh, able to deal with the uh, complicated world that we live in, where num- you have a confluence of different tensions kicking at the same time, economic tensions, the energy crisis, the Ukrainian crisis, the economic recession, the, uh, the pandemic still you know, hovers in the background. And it seems to me that we are still in a world where uh, you have children trying to play uh, a grown-up game in in, in Western uh, international relations. Huh. You know, Frank, it, it's been my experience to talk with liberals in the United States who are uh, pushing, you know, the the tolerance and the just the the liberal vision of things, which to them is really a highly benevolent. Uh, vision of society that will improve social relations, will make everyone happier if they simply go along with that kind of liberal tolerance and diversity and, and the equity thing and so on. And that when they run into people who say, you know, we don't like this. We don't want this. You're actually imposing this on us and it feels aggressive. They, they they can't take that in because we we're the aggressive ones. We we are the ones who who are oppressing you. No way. We're 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 good people. Is this 
Is this something of the of the EU attitude here? A little bit. I think you call it tolerance, but obviously what you're describing is intolerance. Because what you're saying is that uh, our values are really beyond question. They have to be accepted and imposed upon anybody, no matter how unwilling they are. And it's a kind of woke imperialism that has kind of kicked in where uh, they continue lecturing the world about you know, what is right and what is wrong, what they should say and what they cannot say. And particularly as somebody who's originally Hungarian, I feel that this is you know, something that you know, never stops. You know, where you, you send, we have, even have a situation where the EU, uh, together with the United States, who has, under Biden have set up Radio Free Europe again, are lecturing uh, people in East Europe and also Russia about how to behave. And they don't really understand that uh, even if their values are beyond reproach, we should still understand, if you do believe genuinely in diversity, that there's a diversity of viewpoints and of values, and that certain things like the importance of sovereignty, the importance of the family, the importance of tradition, uh, they, are, they really mean something very, very important. Uh, and therefore, to make fun of that or to look down upon it or call it outdated is to invite a lot of uh, hostility and trouble. Yeah. Uh, Frank, what was the thesis of your 2014 book, First World War, Still No End in Sight? Well, the thesis was that uh, the First World War kicked in a, a series of conflicts which weren't just simply military, but also cultural. In fact, I argue that the cultural war actually has its roots in that conflict, which raises problems that were never resolved. And people knew that because they knew that the Second World War was a continuation of the first, and they knew the Cold War, to some extent, came out of the Yalta Agreement and uh, represented the unresolved issues of, that were, in a sense, raised on the battlefields of the First World War. But then when the Cold War ended, people imagined that that was the end. If, you know, all these conflicts had finished. We had now reached the stage of end of history. And what they did not realize was that, in fact, what had happened was that uh, the problems were still there, but they were emerging in a new form. And in particular, uh, the position of Russia uh, was never clarified after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And all those areas that used to belong to the Soviet empire uh, were still uh, sort of raising problems that emanated from the 1914-1918 war. So yeah, in that sense, I call it uh, the First World War, no end in sight. And I also argue that the Ukrainian-Russian conflict is a, a war that's going to go on for a very, very long time. It's, it's not, the war cannot resolve some of the questions that have been that have emerged over the decades and which have been studiously ignored by politicians and diplomats. You say that globalist thinking and globalist politics require some severe amnesia and denial. Uh, what, what, what do you mean there? Well, I, I talk about the phenomenon of historical amnesia uh, as being really quite critically important. And I also uh, explain that we live in a very presentist mode where, where essentially uh, the uh, historical time is divided between the bad old days 
which you want to forget about and, and the good old days like now. And part of that historical amnesia has been that we actually forget the kind of uh, values and the kind of norms that were central to the development of European civilization, of enlightened European culture, kind of think that they're somehow no longer relevant, they're outdated, or, or they're even bad, there's something really wrong with them. And because of that, because of this historical amnesia, we somehow uh, have been cut off from the, from the, from the links uh, that make us who we are, that there's been a kind of rupture uh, between the present and the past, which means that we are almost have become a, a, a prisoner in our own present is safe space. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we are often unable to deal with uh, the problems that confront us. In the book, I develop a concept which needs to be developed even further, which I think is central to what I'm talking about, which is what I call the moral disarmament of the West, where essentially the West, and that includes also America, not just Europe, uh, becomes so estranged from the from the values that have made and created Western culture, that it's lost the capacity to, to be able to uh, make moral judgments about the big problems that, 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 that we are dealing with. And that refers to the Ukrainian war as well, which means that particularly our young, the younger generations, are left bereft of any kind of guidance as to how to respond to these kinds of crisis situations. Fortunately, that's something that still exists in the Ukraine. Otherwise, they would have been the Russian troops would have been in Kiev by now, if it hadn't been the, uh, for the for the moral uh, values and, and virtues that they adopted in, in a sense, in resisting the the Russian invasion. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, you, you do talk about uh, in a certain sense, in spite of the presentism, the lingering uh, memory or mismemory of the Cold War in a phenomenon you term Cold War envy. What is that phenomenon? A Cold War envy uh, is, is very strong among uh, policymakers, and it refers to the fact during the, during the Cold War, uh, it was easy to uh, look good and it was easy to legitimate your your policies because on the one hand, you had the West, the freedom-loving nations, the democratic nations, the economically prosperous nations, fighting the Soviet evil empire. And in many ways, the very existence of the Soviet evil empire legitimated uh, the West without the West having to do much thinking about what it stood for. All he had to do was to, was in a sense, draw a moral contrast between itself and the obviously morally inferior Soviet empire, which people could see very, very clearly. And things were almost black and white at that point. And with the end of the Cold War, that kind of clarity 
that existed, you know, which was gained without too much effort by policymakers was lost. And things became increasingly complicated because suddenly uh, the West realized that it was in increasingly divided internally and amongst itself and could no longer simply have this uh, moral authority that it, enjoy it enjoyed in the previous decades. You refer to a crisis of meaning that set in with the, the end of the Cold War and, and the ensuing dissatisfaction that we see among people and the, and the, uh, the disunity. Why is it that economic prosperity and liberal freedoms are not enough to ensure unity and cohesion in a society? Well, I think the problem is that uh, at the end of the day, every community, every society needs a certain moral foundation on which it kind of uh, builds itself. It needs that foundation as a way of, of socializing the younger generation and also as a way of binding people together so that people know that although they may have different backgrounds and they have different uh, interests, but nevertheless, there's a certain expectation that to be an American or to be English or to be French or German uh, means uh, embracing a certain set of norms and values. And if you haven't got that, then a lot of people are asking the question, well, who am I? What does it mean to be German? What does it mean to be French? And uh, that is a recipe for internal conflict and division for a, what becomes a very polarized cultural landscape. And that is something that has become deeply, deeply entrenched in many Western societies. Do you think, Frank, that the, the, the Ukraine situation, if it goes on and on, as you predict, that this is a, a death blow to the ideology of, of globalization, the ideology of it, if not, it's actual practice, but, but, does this does this bring uh, a nationalistic sense back into more and more of the the intellectual or policy making circles? Well, you have to remember that this is happening at the same time as people realizing during the pandemic that if they were going to get vaccinations, they weren't going to get it from an international institution like the World Health Organization or the EU. So they realized the importance of national governments uh, already at that point. And now with the uh, explosion of economic conflict and rivalries over energy sources, it becomes evident that, uh, you know, that, that in a sense, you know, national governments are crucially important to guarantee the economic well-being of different societies. So I think we're living at a moment where suddenly people are realizing that borders are important after all. And they're realizing that, you know, at, at the end of the day, you cannot rely on these in, kind of global inst international institutions, but that national governments and the nation is something that you have to take much more seriously. So I do think that we are moving back into a, a situation that is not unlike what it was before the First World War, where both national rivalries and national sensibilities seem to be... Um, Gaining, gaining definition and gaining strength. 
you speak of something you call, quote, the sovereignty of bad faith. What is that? <laughs> um, well, I, I think that what it really refers to is the way in which uh, uh, in, in, in the absence of, of moral clarity, a lot, a lot of the policymakers and, and decision makers you know, very often um, are involved in, in kind of uh, putting forward ideas and policies that they themselves understand are nothing like the way that it is kind of presented. And I think there is a, there's a kind of uh, reliance on fairly dishonest solutions. So these days when you want to get something done as a policymaker, you don't actually put yourself in, in front of the cameras and lead the charge. You basically say, this is what the experts said. This is what the public health officials indicated. And you hide behind science or expertise or, you know, or some kind of uh, international body to uh, promote the uh, policies that you are too cowardly to argue for in an, in an open public space. The, uh, you, you write in terms of that, that coward, cowardice of the leaders, you write, quote, the war in Ukraine brings into relief the fragile state of the moral authority of Western politicians. Uh, can can, can you give us give us give us a little more more specifics on that? Well, I think it's interesting that somehow, almost overnight, Zelensky emerges as this unique, charismatic, authoritative figure, and what you have almost in, instantaneously is Macron goes to uh, Kiev to take a picture with him with Zelensky, then Boris Johnson shows up. You know, uh, and then every leader in the West wants to go to Kiev for a photo opportunity just because they are kind of parasitically trying to live off the moral authority of this one individual who hmm. appears to be quite plausible. And, and, the, and the way they do it is really highlights the fact that these individuals, on their own account, are not able to come across with that, in that kind of forceful, plausible way. And they have to, to some extent... Uh, tried to get a bit of the action from from the Ukrainians, uh, which I think is quite sad. Yeah, and it tells us just how bad things are in terms of the lack of leadership. You you actually tie it to a, a general phenomenon of narcissism in in the West, the narcissistic culture that quote encourages the personalization of the war in Ukraine. How how do people personalize that war? Well, I mean, the way they personalize it is by saying, for example, like uh, when I was living in England, you'd have universities that would provide special uh, workshops uh, for students who were traumatized by what was going on in the Ukraine. And these were, you know, sort of students that have never been anywhere near a battlefield or have never experienced anything. And, you know, sort of, and you often had, if you look at the commentaries, it was not so much about Ukraine, but about what Ukraine meant to me, you know, sort of, or alternatively, uh, people are, you know, sort of almost like, uh, sort of, uh, almost like kind of having this kind of personal revelation about themselves, hmm. about the heroism of other people. So it almost became like a, 
a kind of therapy. Ukraine became a therapy for some people where they, you know, that would make them f feel good about themselves, uh, yeah. which I thought was uh, extremely worrying that this is the way people react to a, a real war situation. I know. Uh, you, you add that for, for many, uh, Ukraine serves as a chance for, quote, moral redemption. Uh, wh why, do, why do Westerners need to be saved in that way? Well, if you haven't got the moral resources uh, to save yourself and your community, and if, if you feel that something very profound is lacking in, the, in your community's life, and you kind of know that uh, you just kind of, you, you belong to a country which has drawn with complete humiliation from Afghanistan, mm. as have you know, all these Western countries, and having undertaken all these promises, you kind of break them casually, uh, and you have this number of setbacks internationally, then Ukraine, you know, kind of looks at, you know, looks as a, as an, as a, as a medium through which, you know, by supporting it, you feel that yes, you're on the right side of history, yes, you know, so I'm, I am, and my community are, are doing something morally worthwhile. So, Ukraine has become this uh, medium through which uh, at least sections of Western society have tried to almost kind of reinvent themselves as kind of, uh, they may be laptop warriors, but nevertheless they are, you know, sort of through their support, you know, are demonstrating that they're good people. Uh, Frank, you mentioned the, the embarrassment of the Afghanistan withdrawal. Did, did that event really go down big in Europe as, as a blow to American, American power or prestige or trust in, in American power? Oh, it did. I think that uh, the, the, the casual manner in which it was done completely traumatized sections of policymakers. I'm now living in Brussels where I've taken on this job to run a, a think tank. And I've just been to, to NATO recently and talking to some of the NATO members, the East and Central European NATO members, they all make the point that one day they were told by Americans in NATO that we will never withdraw. None of us will ever withdraw from Afghanistan. And two weeks later, the American representative called them in and basically said, you know, we're leaving in five hours, catching hmm. everybody unaware. And just imagine the impact that had and the loss of trust that that implied, where your ally unilaterally kind of takes a decision that's the opposite to what they undertook just a few weeks before. I, I don't think a lot of Americans really recognize how closely uh, Europeans and others around the world uh, do draw judgments about American actions like that. I mean, I, I think the Afghanistan withdrawal, for instance, didn't factor into the election here at all. I mean, I think it's forgotten by by most Americans. And what you're saying is 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 actually a little a little disturbing. But for now, uh, the the road to Ukraine: How the West Lost Its Way. That's the title of the book. Frank Fioretti, thank you for joining us. Pleasure, Mark. Nice talking to you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, 
and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.